Good morning, North Boulevard. Hope you are doing well today. If we have not met, my name is David Hunziker. I'm the campus minister at the West Murfreesboro campus. So hello to West campus members who are joining maybe a little bit later today or in the week. Hello to the online campus. Today we start off, and I've got two words for you. Two words. I'm going to be a little tongue-in-cheek here. I'm not being all that serious, but I do believe these two words are two of the most powerful words in the English language, and I want to give them to you today. They are powerful enough to make an enemy your friend. These two words are powerful enough to bring your teenage sons back into the same room with you and even at the same table as you. These two words are powerful enough to take a grumpy spouse and make them happy again if you use them at the right time. Here they are. Ready? Let's eat. Those are the two words. You could even uh, use free food if you wanted to use it there. I know you're already thinking about food. We might as well talk about it. It's Thanksgiving week. Um, I don't know if you've already started feasting yesterday. I did. I went to see my Telahoma family and the hash brown casseroles there and the sweet potato casserole and the turkey. And now you're licking your lips. I understand. Um, it is that time to start thinking about food. But I wonder if you've ever thought not necessarily just about food, but about the actual process of eating. Think about it for a minute. As humans, we need something outside of ourselves to come inside of us so that we might live. It's pretty interesting. That means we're dependent beings. It means that we don't have life within ourselves that could sustain itself. So we need something outside of us to come in us to sustain us. God is not that way. It's not that way for God. If you were to, to depict him in an image, you would be wise to depict him as Exodus 3 does. And that is as a fire burning in a bush, but the bush does not burn up. Why does the bush not burn up? Because the fire doesn't need the bush. It exists in and of itself. It doesn't have to eat the wood. If we were depicted as a fire, we would go through a batch of wood and then need more wood and con con continue to consume the wood. But that's not the way with God. This property is so rare that only God has it. It's the property of aseity. You want to say it? All right, I'll say it, you say it. Aseity. Yeah, nice. God exists in and of himself, for himself, and by himself. He doesn't have to eat. He just is. So then if you ask the God who's depicted that way, what's your name? He would say, I am. I am. I exist. I live. And I always have, always will, in and of myself, by myself. I don't need anything outside of me. Jesus uses this title, I am, on multiple occasions in the Gospel of John. It gets him in trouble to call himself one with the self-existing God. But you are not this. You and I need something outside of ourselves to come inside of ourselves in order to live, which is why God created you to crave. God created you to crave so you could go and find that thing and consume it, and then you can live. No problem so far in the sermon, right? You're tracking me. And there's really no tension. This is just how it is. God created you to crave. We crave. The problem arises, though, when your enemy begins to work on you at the level of your cravings. So Satan cannot stop you from craving. 
So he seeks to control your cravings and in that way control you and your destiny. Think about how he controls your cravings. Number one, he tempts you to crave that which is prohibited. This is a first way in which he tries to control your cravings. You might use the word forbidden. So there is something in creation that God has forbidden. Satan says, I ask, I tempt you to crave that. And in the forbidden, you'll find life. It's one of his earliest strategies. It takes us back to Genesis chapter 3. There was one tree in the garden that was prohibited. So he says about that one tree to Eve, hey, if you eat it, you will not surely die. God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. This is him directing her cravings to the one forbidden thing. Your eyes will be open. You'll be like God. So first of all, he wants you to crave the prohibited. I will tell you, unfortunately, as a man of experience, there's no life in the forbidden. And the people beside you have tried it. And we think in that we'll find life and there's no life in the forbidden. Second, he asks you to crave the predictable. The predictable is that life which you get to call the shots and you can decide what tomorrow looks like and you're in control of what your five-year plan looks like. This is why James 4 is really important. James says in James 4, listen, you who say today or tomorrow I'll go to this city or that city and I'm going to do my, my business dealings and we're going to make this much money and then we're going to return home. He says, you don't even know what tomorrow holds. For you to boast like this is evil. You ought to say if it is the Lord's will. We'll do this or that. But it's Satan who works at the cravings to get you to crave the predictable, the prohibited. And number three, the perishable. This one's pretty interesting because there isn't anything immoral about it. Food, clothing, money. It's nothing immoral. It actually comes from God. But in getting you to crave the perishable all the time. He's working to keep you from craving Christ. That's the point. All right? So if we could just get them right now to crave lunch more than the Lord, he wins. That's the point. That's what he's working on. In our story today in John chapter 6, we're going to be in 25 through 35 in a minute. In our story, nobody's craving that which is forbidden. Nobody's trying to do something that's unlawful or unlawful. Nobody's craving control, like trying to seek control from God or doing anything that's predictable here. But there is a crowd of people, thousands of people, who are craving the perishable. And it's such a significant craving that they miss Christ right in front of them. Jesus rebukes them for craving the perishable. Here's the question. Do you find that your life won't amount to anything beyond what you have amounted and amassed in your cravings. These people are craving things that will not last. So in John 6, 25 is where we're going to pick up the, the story. And uh, because we're picking up kind of midway in the story, let me catch you up on a few things going on in John chapter 6. First of all, uh, the chapter begins with a large crowd of people coming out to Jesus. That large crowd has come out to Jesus because many um, sick have been healed. So they come to him for the healing of the sick and to watch these things take place. Because they come out in a far and remote uh, territory, Jesus is prompted to feed them. They're hungry. 
So he takes a, a young boy's lunch of five loaves, two fish. He miraculously multiplies those loaves, feeds the large crowds enough to everybody eats their heart's content, and the disciples each leave with 12 basketfuls left over. It's an amazing miracle. All four gospels include it. It's a sign. So the feeding happens. The crowds disperse. The 12 disciples go across the Sea of Galilee, but Jesus retreats to pray. He's up in a mountainside. People are watching that Jesus didn't get on boats. He's there till the late watches of the night. Then he walks out on the water to his 12 uh, disciples. He goes into the boat. It's a stormy night on the water. He gets in the boat. Then they're over to the other side of the sea. The crowd is confused as to where he is, but they do really want to seek him out. And let me just point your attention to this. Jesus is a masterful teacher, but a masterful teacher knows it's not just in what you say. It's when you say it. And it's how to create a right moment for saying what you want to say. He knows the crowd is going to seek him out because he's just fed them. So they wake, they look, they say, well, I don't find him on the mountain. I don't see him over here. We didn't think he got in a boat. Where did he go? There's a fleet of ships that have blown in to their port. And it looks like probably the storm through the night blew them in. They get on the boats, they go across the sea, and they find him. And we all know why they're looking for him. It's because their bellies. This is where the story begins, in chapter 6, verse 25. When they found him, on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? They don't really care about that. There was a curiosity about how he got there, because not every day somebody walks across the water. But they don't really care about it. He knows they don't really care about it, so here's his answer. I tell you the truth. You were looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. So he uses this word signs. The signs in the Gospel of John are signs. They point to something. They're not the destination. The signs point to the identity of Jesus as Savior and King. That's not how they're seeing these events, though. And Jesus is not pleased with that. They're seeing signs as an end to selfish gain. Hey, if this guy's healing people, let's get healed. If he's feeding people, let's get our bellies full. And they're missing the fact that these are signposts pointing to a man's identity and that the whole of the story is centered around him. They're just chasing a fill. He calls him out on it. Here's what he says next. Do not work. So he's about to, to correct them. And this is how he starts by correcting them. Do not work or do not spend your life or do not waste your life, Jesus is saying. Don't, don't give all the energy of your life to food that spoils or perishes, as the ESV would say, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Now, that whole idea of seal of approval gets them thinking. They want to be approved by God. They want to do the works required of God. So they ask this next question. Well, what must we do to do the work God requires? It's a very important thing, and we will never say it enough. You can't do the work God requires. You, you can't do anything. All of you have um, done a miserable job, and I love you, and I'm saying this from the heart. All of you have done a very poor job doing the works God requires. You're really bad at being good. 
Me too. Really bad at it. And you haven't done the work God requires. They can't do the work God requires. So Jesus responds with the most loving and it's a gift to mankind, this response. This is the point, man. He says, the, the work of God is this. To believe in the one he has sent. The one that God has sent, Jesus Christ, has actually done the work God requires. Saving faith then is when you just humbly fall onto that. And you humble yourself and you admit, I have not done the work God requires. And I, I just want Jesus. I just want Jesus. And that's, that's what he's trying to get them to do. That this whole thing is pointing to a person. All of scripture has and this moment is pointing to a person. Here's how they respond. So uh, what sign then will you give to us? It's so frustrating. What sign will you give that, that we'll see the sign and then we'll believe? It's, it's kind of one more like, well, one more thing. If you give us one more thing, maybe then we'll believe. But the question itself is very dishonest because we've already exposed their motives. They're not looking for signs to then place their, their belief. They're looking for what they can get. They're looking for a fill. They're, they're looking for shortcut in life. The question itself is dishonest. If there was a genuine search, Jesus would have responded to that. God always responds to a genuine search. The fact that it's not genuine continues to be seen as they say the next thing they're going to say. Notice what's on their mind. Here, they're like, here, here's an idea of a sign you could do. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. This just came to us, top of our head, you know. Here's a good sign. Why don't you do the sign of Moses? And he had bread come down from heaven. You could do that sign. Jesus said to them, I truly, I tell you, it's not Moses who brought the bread from heaven. His response here is he's noticing they're, they're pitting prophet against prophet. If you're better than Moses, then show us you're better than Moses. You're a prophet. Here was a prophet who once fed the people. He fed them for 40 years. He fed millions of people. So far, you have only done 15, 20,000 in only one time. If you're better than Moses, do the sign of Moses. Let the bread come down. Let the bread fall. Jesus is not interested in doing this kind of profit competition. He's not interested in appealing to their bellies. So here's the response. The bread that my father gives is the true bread from heaven. He's the one who sent the bread. And the bread is the bread that comes down from heaven to give life to the world. They said, sir, give us this bread. No hint here that they're talking about anything spiritual. The, the only thing that we can imagine they're trying to request is like manna 2.0. If you have something better, give us the better stuff. And here's the better stuff. Jesus says, okay, I, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. It's all pointing to me, Jesus says. I know you're hungry. I'm the bread of life. Truly, I tell you, he says later in the sermon, he doubles down on the whole thing. The one who believes has eternal life, and I am the bread of life. There's a different kind of life at, the, at stake here. Your ancestors ate the manna, but they died. I'm giving you bread from heaven that if you will eat, you will not die. Jesus says, this is a better bread, and it's me. I am the living bread, he says, that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. You don't earn it, I will give it to you. Why flesh? 
He's referencing the atonement. He's referencing his body being given for mankind and there being life given through Jesus that cannot be given to the world any other way. I am here and I will give you all that you need, he says. So his claim is a really, really um, magnificent claim. There are at least three things, a whole lot more, that he's saying about himself in this text. The first thing he's saying is that he's eternal. That's the part of the statement that we focus on when we focus on the I am. It's a claim to being eternal. Uh, so the bush, the burning bush, the self-existing one, Jesus is claiming to be one with God in these claims. It's a, it would be blasphemy if it wasn't true. And uh, there are many who've argued through the years that Jesus never made any claims of divinity. He actually never explicitly said that he's God. I would combat that with these seven I am statements in John. But let me also show you why I do believe that these are claims of divinity. In two chapters over, John chapter 8, he's in an argument. He stays in those with religious elites. They're challenging him this time not to be better than the prophet Moses. They're challenging him to be better than the, the, the prophet Abraham or the, their father of faith, Abraham. They say, are you better than Abraham? He says, truly I tell you, Jesus answered before Abraham was born, I am. Immediately it was understood what he's saying. He is truly reappropriating these I am statements around himself as God among us. How do we know that? Look at their response. The people picked up stones to stone him because nobody gets away with claiming to be God. So his first claim here is that he's eternal. The second thing Jesus is making clear in this chapter 6 is that he is essential. That's the part of the statement about bread. So in um, like 18 years old to, to now... I have been interested in the show um, I Shouldn't Be Alive because it's a survival show. And if the show repeats itself, all of the episodes are the exact same. Somebody is in a perilous situation. They're without resources. Somehow they make it. They're being interviewed about how they survived their perilous situation, how they were pulled over. Their, their, their car died on a desert highway. There was no food or water for miles and while the person is being interviewed about how they survived, I'm still holding my breath like, are you going to make it? You can't go long without bread or you will die. So when he says, I am bread, he's bringing to light the very purpose of your craving. You cannot go long without bread or you will die. You cannot go without me or you will die. Then he says, I am the bread of life. And this is the fact that he's claiming to be enough. So if you find Jesus, you find life. If you don't know you have life, you might not be converted. Because if you have Jesus, you know you have life. And it's, a, it's an everlasting life. It's an eternal life. It's a satisfied life. It's life very different from just existing. So you can exist in your body by eating physical bread all of your life and not really live. Jesus is saying, I actually introduce you to a form of life in the Greek that's called zoe. This is life that goes beyond just being one with your creation. And now you're one with your creator. This is life that's meaningful. It's full. It's abundant. It never ends. Jesus says, I can give you that. I'm enough for that. Now, how did they respond to all of this about Jesus? Here's how they respond. It's incredibly sad. From this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. What happened? What happened? So it's a little deceiving to read this in John chapter 6 because it's easy to believe we're very early on in his ministry. But John's gospel spends so much time on the final week and more time on the final year. I'll just tell you, we're actually at year two. 
Some of these people had followed Jesus for two years. And now he's watching the crowd leave. Thousands of people leave. Until there's 12 left. It's like, what happened? Here's what happened. The crowds couldn't think about their souls for thinking of their stomachs. That's what happened. They were thinking only of their stomachs. Christossom once said, and I like this quote, men are nailed to the things of this earth. Nailed to it. Can't rise above it. Get stuck in thinking about concerns of the world. Food and clothing and the bank account. And what's going to happen next? And, and, and how am I doing compared to the guy that I'm trying to beat? It's interesting in this, in this text, and I think it helps to get some context about what's going on in first century Palestine. They're not about to starve. The, the first century Palestinians weren't, were not um, rich by any means. But the crowd that's with Jesus isn't about to die. What's happening is that unlike our income, so some percentage of your income goes towards food, 85% of first century Palestinian income went towards food. 85%. So if you imagine earlier in this week, they've already been fed once. That take-home pay is looking really good. Like we're going to actually be able to pocket and take home more than we have in any other, other working week. If Jesus feeds them again, they're taking home double what they would have made in a normal week. Like where's that bread thing? Because if you do that, we can get ahead. And we're searching for something that the Bible has already warned you about can never be satisfied. That's what they're searching for. Jesus doesn't want to play that game. Here's what they're searching for. Ecclesiastes 5.10 tells you, if you love money, you will never be satisfied with your wealth. You'll never be satisfied with your income. This is meaningless. It's not a game God's interested in playing in your life. It's not that he won't provide, but he's not interested in playing this game. Hebrews 13.5 says, keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content. And the reason for being content in Hebrews 13 is because the presence of God is with you in your life. It's not all about provision. It's not all about stuff. So as a, actually 10 years ago, and it's really amazing to, to think it has been now 10 years. 10 years ago as a Harding student, I was with the class uh, called Living World Religions. We got a really neat opportunity to go to Dallas, Texas, and to visit different temples of different faiths. So from Sikhs, to Muslims, to Buddhists, to a particular strand of Buddhism called Soka Gakkai. This one, to me, was the most meaningful visit of my time. What happened, we walked into a room that was just a, in, a, in a strip mall, so a normal kind of environment, about 50 chairs facing forward, 40 or so people sitting in the chairs. My class was sitting in the very back of the room. At the front of the room was a cabinet with scrolls. Those were open and a, a gold-plated gong that was beside the, the cabinet. In front of it was a, a stack or a pile of, of beads. So the people came in, they filed in, they faced that cabinet with those scrolls. They either had their own or they grabbed some prayer beads. They sat down. No one said much of anything. They had the beads, and they slowly began warming up their hands with the beads like this, the beads in their hands. Somebody went to the front of the room, I suppose the officiant of the meeting took a mallet and whacked the gong. Being brand new and 
unprompted by our teacher. We had no idea it was going to happen. We heard this chorus of voices call out the same phrase over and over as they um, rubbed their beats. The phrase is, Nam Yoho Renge Kyo. Nam Yoho Renge Kyo. Nam Yoho Renge Kyo. And they rubbed their beads, and all together in unison, they, they chanted this phrase. For 20 minutes, the room was filled with this noise. My body was even beginning to shake with it. Still going. Uh, guy comes up with the mallet. 20 minutes later, he hits the gong again, and I'm like, it's done. No, I was so wrong. Double time. Nam yo ho renge kyo. Nam yo ho renge kyo. Louder. More intense, with more resolve, more confidence, more passion, sweat on people's faces, rocking, letting it out. I found out Nam Yoho Renge Kyo is a, a powerful statement for them, coming from a title of one of the Lotus Sutras, that they believe sends out the right kind of message or vibe into the universe that if said with enough resolve, it'll come back to you and bless you or answer the question or solve the problem that you had on your mind when you were praying. So they were taught to think very specifically, what's the thing you're wanting? What's the thing you're trying to do? And then chant like you mean it. Get it to come back to you. That's what we watched for almost an hour. The person went up, hit the gong again, and the room fell quiet. People put their beads away and began to mingle and talk. I went up to a guy named Nathan. He looked very similar to me. And I just began to ask him questions. How did you find this place? What got you interested? He said, I'm raised here in Texas. Like you as a Tennessee boy, I'm sure you were raised very similar. I was raised a Christian. I said, yeah. And he said, I graduated college and I needed a job. I had been praying for a job for months. Couldn't get it. This particular one I needed. He said, I called my aunt. She said, well, you need to come and do this thing with us. So he said, I came. I went. Went on a Monday night, did the chant. On Tuesday, I got a call, and I got the job. So now I'm here. Nam yoho renge kyo. I remember thinking so many things when I heard the story. First, God's time is not our time. Who knows that your good father didn't answer this prayer just out of time with you. Second, there is such a thing as spiritual warfare. Who knows that a demonic influence hasn't entered the scene to try to woo you away from Christ, and then now you have this job. But thirdly, this is what I thought. You have traded the bread of life for bread on your table. And that's, that's a decision you'll regret for eternity. What kind of gospel had Nathan heard? Can I ask you that question? What kind of gospel is being preached? The gospel of like, God will do your bidding, and, and if you have an expectation for life, you can bring it to him and he'll meet it every time. Or if you have a will, God will make sure your will is accomplished. Or you get to decide exactly what you think your life should look like, and you just tell him and it should happen for you. You decide, you play the role of God. Let him just serve that. Is that the gospel he heard? What of the gospel that there is no other name given to men by which we must be saved but Jesus Christ? What about the gospel of the pearl in a field? 
And the man says, I found treasure and everything else is now dead to me. I don't need anything else. Take it. I just want the pearl. Or what about the gospel as Jesus teaches it from Matthew 6, 33? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you as well. I just don't believe Nathan grew up hearing the pure, true gospel. The genie in the bottle gospel is not the gospel. The gospel is centered on one figure, Jesus Christ, who has done for man what nobody else has ever done for man or could do for man because your one need isn't your belly. Your one big need is reconciliation with God. And Jesus became sin who had no sin so that you could become the righteousness of God in him. That's the gospel. And Nathan traded it for a job. And I, I just want to submit, we actually get kind of tied up in this ourselves. Let me ask you a pointed question. You can tell your neighbor your answer, okay? Are you like the crowd who left or are you like the 12 who remained? How would you even know, right? Well, how would you know? The answer is still found in Matthew 6, Are you seeking first the king or are you seeking first your needs? Only you know that. I cannot tell you that. So there's no point in the sermon where I'm going to make it really clear which one you are. You have to decide. Are you seeking first the king or are you seeking first your needs? That's between you and the Lord. And uh, I, don't, I don't have to know that. You know that. From this time... The text says, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. So Jesus looks at his 12 and he says, you don't want to leave too, do you? I don't know how he said that. Like, what emotion is in that? I would imagine some hurt. Because he didn't just watch the crowds walk away from an optional side of bread at Thanksgiving. He just watched thousands walk away from the one true source of life. And now he looks at him and he says, are you going to go too? Because it's not all just working out the way you wanted it to. And your expectations aren't being met just like you wanted them to. And you care more about your stomach than your soul. Are you going to go? And here's how Peter responds, who always speaks perfectly, right? In this one, he nails it. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know what? What does Peter come to believe and know? Why do the 12 stay? We have come to believe and to know that you always meet our expectations just like we have them. That any time we think it should go like this, you make it like that. We've come to believe and to know that you give us everything we think we need in life. It's not what he said. We've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. We've come to believe and to know that you are. The signs point to who you are. My hunger points to who you are. The whole of the gospel points to who you are. The whole of the scriptures point to who you are. All of creation points to who you are. And we are staying, not because our expectations are met, but because of who you are. You are the Holy One. 
and we're not going anywhere. And yes, later today we're going to have to pack up camp. We don't have a place to stay. We don't have a ton of provisions. We're already kind of misunderstood, and now everyone thinks we're cannibals. Thank you for that line uh, in the sermon. Nothing is going like we thought. But we know who you are, so we're going to stay. You understand the Christian life is based on the truth of the identity of Jesus Christ. It's not based on your feelings, and it's not based on how you expected it to go. It's the truth of Jesus as he is, and that's why they stay. The point of the sermon and the point, I believe, of this text is this. If you don't get anything else, please take this home with you. If you have nothing but Jesus, you have all you need. Please take that home with you. Take that to your friends. Take that to work. If you have nothing but Jesus, you have all you need. I immediately think of the Apostle Paul when I think of this whole dynamic. It's amazing because he, he kind of had the opposite experience. Paul was very well off. He was well respected. He had plenty of provision. He counted it all rubbish for Jesus. He left it all, ends up, for the sake of the gospel, being imprisoned. So while he's in Rome, check this out. Paul has little bread, like less bread than everybody else gets opportunity for bread. While he's in Rome, he has less entertainment. He has less resources. He has less opportunity. He has less of life, as we call life. And it's from that place he says this, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry. That's not an accident that this is all in there, all in the same scriptures. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, he says. Now, what's the secret? It's actually a verse you might have memorized a long time ago. I can do all things, say it, come on, through Christ who strengthens me. The point of that whole section is, I'm eating the bread of life, and I'm okay. I'm okay. And if everyone in Rome has more bread, more resources, more entertainment, more opportunity. Paul can't even go to the theater. He's in prison. He, can't, he has nothing. If everyone else in Rome has more of quote-unquote life, check this. Somehow, Paul is the only one who's actually really living because he has the bread of life. He says, I'm, that's enough. I'm good. I'm okay. I'm okay. It's an amazing thing. So I, I pray a few things happen at the end of this. I pray that together we have a, a shift in perspective. That's the first thing I hope. Here's the perspective. That all reality points to Jesus. All reality points to him. So long before he even came, long before you were born, God designed a thing called hunger. And then he designed a thing called bread. So that, it's not, a, it's not the end in and of itself. Hunger and bread. He designed it so that when Jesus came and he said, I am the bread of life, you would have a category for understanding what he meant. He didn't arbitrarily pick a metaphor. God designed the metaphor. I'm hungry, I eat. So when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, you say, ah, it all points to you. And my, my craving is most satisfied and only satisfied in you. That's a shift in thinking. Here's the second thing, maybe a new practice. If you don't already pray before you eat, I want to encourage you to do so. But I would expect many in the room are like, what? This is the practice? Pray before you eat? We all pray before we eat. 
How about I, um, I reveal to you a traditional prayer. Now, the, the fact I'm appealing to a traditional prayer means this is not a command of God. Just let me talk to you as a brother. If you don't do this, I'm not calling you a sinner. Teach us, here's a traditional prayer. Teach us to know by whom we're fed. Bless us with Christ, the living bread. This is a prayer before a meal that uh, no one knows the name of the author, but it was done traditionally in Christian circles. And I think it's a really beautiful one for us to pray through the holiday season. So when you get that opportunity to sit down in front of your favorite holiday spread, would you pray this one? Teach us to know by whom we're fed and bless us with Christ, the living bread. Because the bread we're about to eat will sustain our bodies for a moment. But Christ gives us everlasting life, knowing God, reconciliation, and hope. So bless us with Christ, the living bread. If you don't remember the rhyme when you sit down to eat, that's okay. Just pray like, this is not living bread. Thank you for Jesus, which is living bread. That's what we want to pray. All right. And then back to the two words that I believe are two very powerful words in the English language. Let's eat. And we're about to do that as a church family in just a minute. If you don't have your communion supplies, get your communion supplies. And let's eat, but let's not eat of that which is perishable so that our lives don't really count. Let's eat of Christ. Amen? Hey guys, would you guys stand up? Let's worship the one we love and we'll feast on Christ.